good day, everybody. I'm Captain Jeff Monroe of the International Association of Maritime Port Executives, and I'm here with my uh, good uh, compatriot and shipmate, Amy Andrus, who is the Executive Director of the Inland Rivers Ports and Terminal Association. How are we doing today, Amy? Hi, Jeff. Good to see you again, sir. Always a pleasure. Always a pleasure. And uh, it's been, busy, been a busy uh, month, you know, with all the things going on and stuff. And, and I have to ask you, right, is, you know, now that, now that uh, it seems that we don't hear anything about the supply chain anymore, the supply chain must be all fixed, right? All fixed. All, all you had fixed. to do was ask. We just That's fixed right. it. They created, <laughs> created this national committee and it's, and it's all been taken care of. Uh, well, I think the reality is, is obviously uh, there's a lot of things that have changed. Uh, and I think fundamentally, I've been very interested in watching what the National Retail Federation has been saying in regards to the movement of cargo and, you know, particularly imports and stuff. Um, and what I've seen in all of this is that, you know, the imports are softening, all right, which is fine. But the question is, why? Is it because people are buying less? Uh, you know, have we, have we fixed issues? What, whatever. And I think the reality in all of this is that um, what we've seen is this buildup of product and inventory. Remember, it used to be just in time. Now it's just in case. And now that we have this big in, uh, buildup of inventory, we're seeing the fact that people are buying that inventory down. And that's what's softening uh, the imports. There have been an increase, a pickup a little bit um, overseas, over in China, on uh, commodity purchasing and everything like that. But a lot of that is staying within the Chinese market and not so much, and in the Asian market, not so much coming to North America. So across the board, there's a lot of things that are showing that the system is softened, which in essence gives us the perception that the supply chain issues have been solved. What do you think on your well, side? Well, you, know you know what's really cool about just in, just in time and just in case? right, is, is the inland river system and the transportation, the maritime transportation, because of the, the structure, because of the system, what's really cool is you almost, you can, you can actually introduce a hybrid here. You can have just-in-time delivery with a just-in-case kind of mentality, you know, so just-in-time, you know, means that as, as the cargo is needed, as the freight is running out on, on the cons consumption end is when we're, we're ordering more. So that's just in time. The just in case kind of scenario is building up your stockpile here at the consumption market just in case you do run out. But if you look at a barge, and barge transportation, and just say, for example, if you have containers sitting in a barge and you don't wait until you're almost out of that commodity and cargo, you can actually order it a bit earlier and have it floating and, and being delivered in a barge in a floating warehouse where you're not paying for the storage at the consumption market end, you're not waiting to order it until the last minute, but it's in progress and it's cheaper to, to transport it because it's cheaper to ship via the water than it is in a truck and you're utilizing a floating warehouse. 
So it's very much like storage in transit is what you're exactly. talking about. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, I think in the long run, um, you know, we're going to see a, a rebound. Um, I think I would say not not so much a rebound, but more a normalization. By the end of 2023, I think we should be fairly back to normal. Um, I think uh, certainly into 2024, we should be where we start to see things normalized between all of the imports uh, and the export side of it. We've had an increase in exports in some areas. Uh, but, you know, the interesting thing is that a lot of the ports, including uh, two of the ports on the Mississippi River, Lower Mississippi River, you know, there are plans for the Port of New Orleans to build a new facility in St. Bernard Par Parish. Uh, and then, of course, Plaquemine, which was announced, which uh, Maersk is driving. Uh, so you're going to see a couple of uh, new facilities. We've got Leatherman Terminals just opened up in uh, Charleston, South Carolina last year. Uh, so there is new investment. So people are anticipating that the flow of commodities are going to continue and are going to remain strong. Uh, however, I think a lot of it obviously has to do with, um, with the economy. Uh, right now, I think a lot of people are buying down their debt. But so you're so you're talking about those two ports, three ports that are investing in their their capacity, right? And so so if you can take more cargo at a at a coastal port, so you can take more imports, you know, it really begs the question, do you have the capacity to move that cargo further inland to the consumption market? So for example, if the port of New Orleans is dredging and investing and building out new facilities to double their throughput of cargo and their and their their connection mode whether it be barge rail and truck one might kind of ask you know do they have the capacity to double the transport further from the import does that make sense yeah, it does. I think, you know, the river system hits, what, 38 states? Uh, and I think in the long run, you know, if you can provide an effective means, but, you know, it also your inland system is is highly underutilized. I, I see a, a, a kind of a, a scenario working through, and we've talked about this before, where you'll see these pendulum services operating back and forth between Asia and Europe, and then a redistribution of cargo on secondary and tertiary vessels. There's a lot of investment right now in these uh, 16,000 TEU and below. Not, every, not everything is gonna be you know, 22,000. We can't handle those ships anyway in the United States. But you know, one of the things that's been interesting is like a good part of like, for example, the Midwest, New Orleans and some of the places that the river system hits is being serviced out of Prince Rupert, right? And uh, so I think these two facilities in New Orleans are gonna change a few things in that you're gonna see more commodities coming in there. I think it's going to be more a trans-Suez service than a Panamanian a Panama Canal service, uh, only because the Panama Canal tolls are a little bit higher than they are on the Suez Canal, and most people will trade off time for cost. But I also see that these new hubs sort of finally developing with, if you look at New Orleans and then you look at other ports like Gulfport, uh, Mississippi, you know, obviously Tampa, Florida, and places like that, that there'll be a new set of distribution. Obviously, what people are most interested in is getting the cargo to the closest location to wherever the consignees are, right? So in the course of all of this, I think that's gonna be part of why we see this new distribution set up in these new facilities working effectively. And I think we're gonna see more port calls 
in the United States and in Canada where uh, the 16,000 TU ships and stuff will be able, instead of hitting three ports, will be able to hit four or five ports, you know, after transloading over in Europe and so. Well, and I think that's gonna have an impact for you. It may be a few, um, a couple of years out, but what, you know, the you had mentioned the two or three ports, you know, on the coast that are investing in their infrastructure. And I gotta say there are, hundreds of ports and terminals, mind you, that are investing in their infrastructure on the inland so that they can increase their throughput and their capacities as well. And what that's going to do is provide more options to shippers in the bulk, uh, in the dry bulk, the liquid bulk, the the unitized cargo, uh, super sacks and, and, and containers even. By allowing these inland port investments through different federal grant programs, um, it's going to you know, bring down the overall cost for the shipper because when we can increase the capacity and throughput and efficiency of our inland facilities that are accepting those cargos, it's going to create a greater competition between other modes. And so I think, um, let's wait and see. I, I think you're going to be very surprised at the infrastructure investments, the capital improvements that are happening on, at the inland facilities. Yeah, and I think that uh, one of the things that works very well for your facilities is that they have a diversified mix, that they're able to handle containers as well as bulk cargoes and, and all the rest, whereas the coastal ports have been very focused on, on handling unitized cargo, you know, particularly containers with multiple terminals in a port area, you know, but the major port authorities have been focused heavily on, on container operations or, or automobile operations and, and the like. But, you know, the reality in all of this is that we seem to have this perception that issues with the supply chain have changed. I'm glad to see that people are thinking way out, you know, certainly what they're thinking in New Orleans, certainly what they thought in Charleston. Uh, they're looking at uh, new projects in Savannah, Georgia, for example. Uh, so I think in the long run, it's, I'm glad to think that, but I, I'm also concerned of the fact that we have not really fixed any of the supply chain issues. We still have a, a driver shortage. I mean, there's no question about that. We still have warehouse capacity issues. We still have issues with uh, personnel on our on our port facilities and stuff. Um, you know, the ports. I, I keep running into it, talking with our various port partners, and you know, they're they're short on people. You know, and the reality in all of this is that I think some of them are reluctant to bring on new people because the state of the economy is that way. But I think the bigger issue is that you know, unemployment is low right now. All right. So as a result of that, there are not a lot of people, you know, who are readily available. Um, the gig economy is picking up, you know. So I think in the long run, we're, we're going to see a rebound, you know, where there's going to be a lot of consumers and there's going to be a lot more demand, you know, and all of these cargoes, I think, are going to bounce back. As you know, most of your bulk cargoes remain relatively steady, even in a downturn. It's really the impact on vehicles and, and commodities that uh, that we see with the economic changes. So I want to go back to the labor um, comment that you made um, before we move on. But you know, I've I've talked to a lot of different companies, and and if we look at the age range of of labor that we're trying to attract to some of these, you know, really hard jobs. Like I don't know when the last time you were out on a dock was, but golly, you know these these terminal operators and barge barge operators, they are out in the elements. Right, and they're doing heavy, hardcore work, and it makes me wonder: what are we doing as an industry to attract some of these 
um, these, these employees? Are we catering at all? Are we trying to, um, you know, diversify our offerings as an employer in, in order to attract some of that, the, that younger generation uh, to the dock and in the warehouse and behind the wheel? Well, I, I, I remember when I used to be young like you, you know, and you're right, working on the docks, particularly up here in New England, you know, uh, in the middle of February and stuff like that, you'd be out there and watching the containers move and, you know, making sure things are running correctly. And, you know, you like to froze your um, your um, fingers off. Yeah. Uh, but, <laughs> but I think, you know, but that's that I think is part of the industry's fault. Because first of all, you know, a single biggest complaint that I hear from a lot of people is they go, well, you know, a lot of people don't know about or understand the maritime industry or the port industry because they don't really see anything unless there's a problem. You know, like when the Ever Given turns sideways in the Suez Canal, all of a sudden everybody's worried about Christmas gifts. But we as an industry, we don't educate our public, right? And that needs to be that needs to be a commitment on the part of each one of our ports to make sure that they understand the business that we're in. And then added to that is the fact that we should really have a, a coordinated recruitment of young people, right, who are interested in working on the docks, who are interested in working in these businesses, right, and not done on a company by company basis, but in essence, a more effective way of doing this. And, you know, we've done this in the past with the military, you know, and we've invited people in and they've been sponsored by uh, terminal folks and stuff. But, you know, the bottom line is the pay is good, the benefits are good, it's very solid work. It's continuous work. The demand is always there, you know, and the, and we have we have to reach out as an industry and and do some coordinated recruiting. I agree. And so I I do, you know, I look at this and I say, you know, it is hard work. It is good pay. It is stable because I feel like these supply chain jobs are always going to be needed. With that being said, because it is so hard, why are 10, 12 hour days needed, right? As an employer, if, if my main goal is to keep the cargo moving at my dock, um, why, does, why, do, why can't I have three shifts instead of two 12 hour shifts? Why, so I, as an employer, I might ask, what are we doing to you know, kind of revise our structure from top to bottom? If, if labor is so unavailable, maybe we should look at why, right? And I'm not saying, you know, cater to uh, a generation and, and make sure we don't hurt their feelings, but I am saying, let's find out why these positions may be hard to fill and look at it that way. Now, I'll also say that our association, uh, IRPT, is really trying to reach that market our office has created a an interactive web page on our website for career opportunities and we display all of our members open positions we monitor their websites frequently we display the position on the website then we email our industry um, database and then we actually put that out on on social media because we know that's where the job seekers are looking is on the social media and so uh, I, there's also in our industry, a group called Riverworks Discovery. And so they have a program that's Who Works the Rivers, 
where they go out to different schools and different regions and talk to the students about the different career paths in the industry. So I'm excited uh, to work with Erin Aaron Howard on her advisory committee to see how we as an industry can come together and strengthen these efforts. Yeah, we don't we don't see that so much um, on the coastal side. First of all, you know, for many of the, the laborers, uh, you know, you have to be a member of the union, right? And and that's fine, particularly up in the Northeast, you know, uh, and the union re really needs to get out there and recruit people. They have a lot of folks uh, who are in essence are aging out right now, uh, but there's a lot of young people that they really need as part of the union, and they have to take down those barriers. In the Southeast, for example, uh, you know, most of the right to work states, right, I think uh, there needs to be a teaming between the vocational schools, you know, and the ports where they make an active method to help people understand that there are good vocational jobs. And by the way, you know, there's always this perception that it's, you know, working on the docks is a guy thing. It's not. There's a lot of women in the industry right now. Uh, and the thing that I found fascinating is, you know, the people who take our management courses and stuff, that uh, a third of them are women who are taking these programs, who are in senior management positions. You know, you have Brandy over there in New Orleans, who's uh, head of the port. Um, you know, you got Barbara Melvin in the port of Charleston. You got uh, Beth Rooney up there in the port of New York. So we're seeing more and more women, you know, who are coming into the industry. We have yourself. You know, I mean, the reality in all of this is that this is not just a, a guy's uh, position anymore. There's good jobs out there. But the other thing is, is that there's got to be really a mentality of understanding that, you know, this is not a nine to five job, right? That weekends are involved. And, you know, as one of the things that people have said to me, uh, I said, yeah, I says, we hire somebody and they leave because they realize they have to work after five o'clock. So there's got to be a cultural shift in our young I people agree. as well. There should be a cultural shift and I would be doing a disservice to my fellow female um, uh, professionals if I didn't make mention that this has historically been a male-dominated industry. And, and yes, you are seeing a lot of females, you know, rise up the ranks into, you know, more of executive level positions as well as females on the dock. Uh, please don't think that we are um, kind of immune to the misogyny uh, happening out there. It is difficult for, for women in this industry um, to really, um, I guess, be heard, right? And, and again, I'd be doing a disservice to my fellow females if I didn't say this, because a lot of, a lot of folks like yourself who are you know, really great people simply don't know that this is happening, but I can tell you as a professional, I've been told to sit down and let the big boys handle this. These yeah, things well, are happening. This mentality is still out there. And I am, I'm, I'm grateful for uh, the platform that I've been given um, to, let, to let this be known that you know, it's still happening and we have a lot of growth still to overcome. Um, and, and yeah, I don't disagree with, with like that, Amy. Yourself. I think I think we are I think we are misogynistic and to a certain extent. But I I will tell you that you know a lot of young men coming into the industry and everything were always beat up by the old guys as well. I mean, you know, mentally, not physically. Though sometimes it was physically. Uh, yeah. <laughs> but you know, but then I look at my own daughter who you know rose to be ship's captain. You know, and the reality is is that you know what what made her successful was you know her perspective and her attitude. You know, if we sit back and we take this, 
you know, whether we're a minority or whether we're a female or, you know, whatever, or even a young man, if we sit back and take this, you know, then there has to be a cultural shift also within our organization. And I think a lot of that has occurred. You know, I don't, I don't think it's certainly as bad as it used to be back, you know, when I, when I loaded the ark, you know, well, I'm just saying, and I just want to, you know, just point out that when you talk about women in the industry, it is more, more than simply which restroom are you using? How do you um, interact with the men on the ship? How does that work as far as, um, you know, sleeping quarters of, of male versus female? And it's more than that. And, and I just want to let you know that that is happening. I feel like our industry is getting better. There's more respect out there. And I think we're all learning together, um, but it is more than, you know, which bathroom are you using? It's that good old boys mentality that we're finally starting to break down and recognize that, that females and women in the industry have something to bring to the table as well. Good old boys like me. <laughs> <laughs> No, I have to admit, I'm half Mexican, so I understand exactly what you're talking about. So not to change the subject, but we need to start thinking about as we're coming into the spring, flooding on the Western River system, uh, certainly, which is already starting to occur, but also prepping for hurricanes. I mean, I have to um, give credit to a lot of the port people who have been facing sort of the issues already of a severe weather during the wintertime. You know, people like Brian Day out there in uh, in uh, Little Rock and stuff with all the tornadoes and everything, but uh, the it's not getting better. Uh, and this is a good time to start doing inventory, start planning uh, to get ready for the season. Well, it's never too early, right? And it's always a good time, whether you're in season or out of out of season, whether it be flood season or hurricane season. When you properly prepare for a disaster it is easier to uh, respond to that disaster and ultimately recover from it. So when we speak about resilience, we look at the plan. Who has the plan? Is there a plan? What's the plan? Who has it? Where is it housed? When we talk about building out a resiliency plan, because resiliency equals supply chain health, right? Um, you know, we don't want it to be a plan that simply sits on the, sh on the shelf. We want to practice the plan, practice it often, and make sure that each new employee that comes in is a part and is incorporated into the plan. So just for example, you know, we've seen um, many hurricanes hit some of our, our major ports of imports, right, and exports. And so, I can give you an example of, you know, there was a port that was hit, you know, several years ago and his first reaction or their first reaction was to hurry up and clean up the damage and fix so that they could get, you know, operating again so they can move that cargo in and out and through the through the port there to help their city recover from this major, major storm that hit the region. Well, in doing so, you know, if if he went back then, which he did, he did go to the, the insurance company and, and put a claim in to, re, you know, recover some of the, the monetary, you know, damages on this. Well, did, where are your before pictures? Where are your during pictures? Well, we have the afters, but if you didn't take your befores and durings, they didn't cover, you know, the damages on that. So understanding what we have to do as an industry to protect ourselves, protect our facilities, prepare for the disaster effectively so that we can recover from it 
um, as quickly as possible. Uh, I know there was another example, you know, back in 2019, we have a, we had three major rivers that ultimately ended up flooding, which was kind of, uh, you know, just detrimental to our entire system um, to have three major rivers flood at the same time. Some of those waters, you know, inundated the port property itself and, and in doing so it did cover um, the, the railroad, right? And there was a train sitting on the railroad after the floodwaters had receded, it had come to be that the before that that train that was sitting on the railroad could touch the class the the main line the class one rail they had to replace every single rail uh, wheel on that train, and it came at the expense of the public port because the train was sitting on their rail. Well, if you didn't plan for that and you didn't budget for that, uh, that's a heavy cost. Knowing who's responsible for what, who, who is in charge of and how to prepare for, again, taking those photos. If, if we knew that we were going to be in charge of replacing at our cost every single wheel on that train, maybe we should have moved it to higher ground. <laughs> Yeah, I agree. And I think there's, there's a great document that was put out by the federal government. It's called a port self-assessment and uh, you can get it online for free. Uh, NOAA was participating as well as several uh, different organizations. Uh, and uh, it actually walks you through a process. We, we tell everybody about it in our executive management program. And, you know, it gives you an opportunity to think about things that you never thought about, all right? insurance, storage of files and materials, you know, how to get back up and running and everything like that. And I think that's a very critical fact. It's called a port self-assessment. Um, and uh, I think it's very readily available online. And I think it's a good time to start thinking to ourselves, hey, this is something that's gotta be part of our management framework and management thinking, right? And look at the aspect of, you know, how do we prepare ourselves? How do we sustain? How do we get back up and running? And you're absolutely right before and after photographs. I find that a lot of our ports don't have information. Like I'll, I'll ask a, a port, you know, what's the what's the static landing weight on your docks? Most of the time they don't know. You know, what's the bollard strain? Most of the time they don't know. So this is all information that they need to find and make sure they have that and then protect themselves and their records and stuff. So, so, so I know Jeff, we're, getting when... close to, we're getting close to the end. Uh, so uh, Amy, when is your national conference coming up? Uh, it's in September. So we'll have our annual conference. It's a national annual conference, September 19th through 21st, uh, September 19th through 21 in Louisville, Kentucky. I am so excited uh, to bring the IRPT family back together. Again, our last one was in Tulsa. And uh, it's always so great to get everyone together, to get all 11 basins together. And it's really where, it's really where the magic happens and the business gets done. Yep. Well, I think that's going to be great. We have, um, I'm headed off to uh, Nova Scotia soon. We're going doing a program and uh, uh, sponsored by the Port of Halifax. Uh, and then we have our AMPE conference in, uh, early, in October, uh, early October. Uh, and then we also have our attorneys program uh, in early October. Uh, we'll be doing a program in Memphis and Inland, both an operators program as well as the executive management program in Memphis. Uh, then a uh, program in Jacksonville uh, for executive management and also a program uh, in um, uh, Savannah, Georgia. And we're in the process now of scheduling a second inland program in December. 
Uh, and I'm hoping that uh, we've been talking with the British Virgin Islands. They would like to have uh, us do one of our international programs down there. So uh, February is a good time to be in the BVI. So uh, I'm sure it'll be a good time uh, to invite people down and stuff. So it uh, should be a, very busy. It's nice to see us coming out of COVID. Uh, I just did a program in uh, Norfolk. We had 17 people participating. So people are traveling again. They and are. And so uh, Rich and I have both been just absolutely crazy traveling lately. So we've been to the IRPT Missouri River Basin meeting, the Ohio River Basin meeting, the Gulf and Intracoastal Basin meeting down in Houston, the Illinois River Basin meeting in East Peoria, Arkansas, White Red, Ouachita down in Fort Smith. And then just Two days ago, we did the Upper Mississippi River Basin meeting in St. Louis. We had record attendance, and I am so excited uh, for everyone that came. Again, it's just about seeing the family, seeing the members in the basin, talking about some of the challenges that we've had in each of these basins, and then strategize on those solutions together. So it's been so exciting, such a great time, and I'm so glad to see everybody out and about again. Yeah, I, the most work gets done when we're all face to face, and as That's much right. as we yeah. like online and uh, or not like online, uh, I found that the dynamics of the in-person programs that we do uh, are much much better because people get to share a lot of great information with each other. They get to know each other, uh, and there's a great new generation of young people like yourself who are coming up, and uh, I'm very excited to have an opportunity to get to know them all. So, uh, anyway, as always, it's a great pleasure to chat with you. And, as always, uh, and likewise with you. And I'm looking to get some feed. I hope we will get some feedback on uh, how uh, these podcasts are being done. We're keeping them the once a month and uh, to uh, uh, to a half an hour. But uh, I know that um, I'm interested. I'm thinking that maybe we'll do a podcast from Canada because I think one of the things you brought up earlier was you know how are things going up there. And I think that would be a great idea to chat with the folks up in Canada where we're up there as well. So uh, we'll, we'll plan accordingly. We'll talk to our very skilled producer uh, who uh, congratulations to her uh, that uh, for having just graduated uh, from uh, college and everything like that. So uh, I, I'm sure she's going to be top shelf and uh, we got to get her. I'm going to get her into the industry and get her onto the docks. She's yours for the next year, I do believe. She's traveling with you in all of your classes, so uh, keep her safe, Captain. <laughs> I certainly will. Anyway, great to talk with everybody, and uh, you take care, and uh, be well, and until next time, smooth sailing, time. folks. Thank you, sir.